Today's scripture is Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Allison. Well, good morning, my friends. Uh, My name is uh, Jim Ellis, and I am the eldest of the elders. That's how I'm going to introduce myself, okay? I am the eldest of the elders. Uh, Obviously, I have the most hair, I think, too, but it's all gray. I must say that as well, so... so. There's got to be something in there for somewhere, so. (laughs) I also want to tell you that I don't use uh, four-point type like Sean does, nor do I use six-point type like Vince does. I use 14-point type because I have these things called bifocals on the bottom, you know, so you got to be able to stand back and look like this. So So welcome to Redemption Church. We are uh, one of nine congregations in Arizona, Tucson, Flagstaff, and seven here in the valley. And we've been working through the book of Philippians, and uh, that's our intent to continue. As I begin this morning, I want to explain what I call a modern-day interpretation problem in the church. I call it the flat Bible syndrome, which caused Eugene Peterson to put together the message, who Sean really loves. Anyway, um, And I do love it. But anyway, uh, the message, which is not a translation, we understand that, nor can it strictly be said to be a paraphrase of the original language of of the Bible. Peterson's goal in creating the message, in his own words, was this, was to bring the Old and New Testament to life for two different types of people. Those who didn't, who hadn't read the Bible because it seemed too distant and too, um, and irrelevant and those who had read the Bible so much that it had become old hat. So what? That's why we need different translations. We need uh, the message and like the New Living Translation to help us understand what I call the texture of Scripture, the depth of the meaning in the Word that we miss because many of us have read it for so long and you're like, I don't want to yawn, but okay, what's new? Well, let me tell you what I've done. I've taken the message... 
and my own thoughts and written a contemporary applic- uh, comment, commentary, perhaps, I'll, I'll call it that, on verses 1 through 11, uh, to you, the church here at uh, Peoria. And so let me read that to you. And uh, of course, it's all about, hope this goes well. <laughs> so here we go. So here it is. And hey, church, that's about it, friends. Be glad, cheerful, and happy in God. Redemption Church of Peoria, we the elders of the church don't mind repeating what the word says and the apostles, what they have written in the earlier letters, and we hope you don't mind hearing it again. As we say, better safe than sorry. So here goes. Our desire is for your growth and continued perseverance in the faith. As Paul urged the Philippians, we want you to steer clear of the barking dogs, those religious busybodies, all bark and no bite. They are a nasty and foul group. All they're interested in is appearance. Our concern as leaders are that your past circumstances and choices, our current culture, and your desire to be successful in your careers do not derail your faith journey. Remember, the real believers are the ones the Spirit of God leads to worship and work away at this ministry filling the air with Christ's praise as we do it. We couldn't carry this off by our own efforts, and we know it, even though we might be able to list a few things that might be seen as impressive credentials. As Paul's pedigree was, he described himself as a meticulous observer of everything set down in God's law. Remember, we are on this journey together. You know, my friends, our credentials and achievements need to be continually torn up and thrown out with the trash, along with everything else we used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, all things we once thought were so important, I wish we could say were gone from our lives. But the battle of putting off the old man and putting on the new is real, and we continually strive to throw them away compared to the highest privilege of knowing Christ as our master. They are nothing. Everything we once thought we had going for us is insignificant, dog dung. We continually dump it in the trash so that we can embrace Christ and be embraced by him. We don't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when we could get the robust kind of righteousness that comes from trusting Christ. God's righteousness, and we want the same for you, our church. We continually to strive, we continually strive with you to give, all, to give up all that inferior stuff so that we can know Christ personally, experience his resurrection power, be a partner in his suffering, and go all the way with him to death itself. If there was any way to get in on the resurrection from the dead, we, like Paul, want to do it. For to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. So as we continue... Our journey in Philippians, I want to share some of my aspirations for you, my hopes for you. My hope is that as we've walked through this book so far, it has become a living part of your life. I hope you've identified, it, identified repeated words, that you've identified key phrases, and that you've seen how much Paul cares for this church and the words he uses to address them. He cares deeply for these believers, and my hope is that You've prepared for Sunday. In fact, I did see one fellow way in the back, and I won't point out 
his name by name, but he was here early working on something, and it looked pretty good. Um, <laughs> in fact, in the verses this morning, I hope you've noted words such as rejoice. Of course, that's all through the book. No confidence in the flesh, which appears twice. Uh, the words righteousness, the words loss and lost, faith, uh, the word no, big word. Paul, I want to know um, in this concept of participating in his sufferings, becoming like him in his de- death. I hope maybe as you've seen that, you've remembered Gethsemane and Jesus' word to the Father when he says, not my will, but yours be done. And you were challenged and shaken as you thought about that. And maybe you even remembered some of my favorite verses from Hebrews 12, where we are encouraged to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We need to consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. If the desire of your hearts is to know Christ better, then these verses will need to be forefront in your minds as we go. Another aspiration, and this is what I would ask of my students at Huntington University for you, is if I got a chance to stop you and ask you to show me your Bible, you'll go, well, what's, what's all about that stuff? Uh, would you pass the test? And here's my test. The test would be that your Bible is well marked, underlined, highlighted, and ready for service. So when you break it open, man, it's like, a, it's like you're making your own Bible a study Bible. It's one that you can pass on to your children in the future. And when they read your notes, they would smile and say, yes, yes. That's exactly what my mom or dad used to say to us and teach us. What an awesome thing. To encourage this, last Christmas in our RC, Shirley and I gave each member of the, of, of the RC the Jim Ellis study tool package, okay? And I have an example of that, okay? It includes a bendable ruler, which adapts to the, to the scope you know, of, of the flip of your Bible, and three pens, black, red, and blue, Pilot P500s, only buy them online, which do not run in your Bible. So, there are 50 outside on the Connect desk for sale as you go. All proceeds go to the church. Anyway, okay, that's not true. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> so as, we, as it is our practice, we're going to walk our way through verses 1 through 11. So Philippians 3, verse 1, Paul says, Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Now, I have to tell you, I'm using the NIV, okay? And it might surprise you that I'm old enough to remember when the NIV came out. I was in seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Zonovans had put it out, and it was like a breath of fresh air. Because up to that time, in the early 1980s, we had the KJV only, or the New American Standard. And when the NIV came out, it was like cool water flowing over our lips. So it was pretty cool. So... I understand the flow, and I think it highlights a few things that I just want to make, make uh, yeah, just more evident. Paul begins with a twofold reminder to his brothers and sisters. He says, he reminds them first to rejoice in the Lord. And I would ask, but you don't have to respond. Anyone counted the number of times rejoice shows up? How about the words joy and gladness? Eh, that would be interesting. Uh, but this is the first time that Paul adds in the Lord. And perhaps because he's going to talk about some unpleasant things in a moment. And also, I think, to focus our attention 
on the importance of knowing the Lord. He also reminds them to remember because what he has taught them is a safeguard for them. The word safeguard has to do or means this. It's to keep you, myself, from tottering or falling or being entrapped by false doctrine. The idea in this text is that repetitious teaching is a safeguard for all of us. Parents and children, how many times have you said or heard, how many times do I have to tell you this? As many as necessary, there's no doubt. Paul's desire and ours is for the body of Christ to be well prepared so that when false doctrine or incorrect thoughts or incorrect application comes your way, you'll be able to respond well because you not only know the truth, but how to mind the truth and then how to apply the truth. We do know repetition does work, don't we? Uh, I have a young, brand new grandson. He'll be a year old in July. And, uh, and I've found that you know you're getting... Oh, there he is. <laughs> That's Griff. He's eating a... No, nectarine on Saturday. So I just had to throw that up there. Okay, Myrna, that's enough. Thank you. (laughs) But but it's interesting as he's been at our house, um, you know, we put all those plugs in the, you know, the plugs in the electrical things. And it's interesting that all those electrical sockets are eye level when you're one year old. You know, you walk up and you know they want to go like this. So now they're all plugged. And as he walks up to them, uh, he turns to me because he knows what I'm going to say. Griffin, don't touch that. He babbles a little bit. I think he's responding like, I can't believe you're telling me that, but nobody can understand him anyway. And then he smiles and he toddles away. So, you know, again, <laughs> repetition is good, for the, is good for us. We want you as elders to desperately know that we consider you the same way that Paul felt for the Philippians. We want you to rejoice well and grow in your knowledge and faith. Paul continues to remind this church by warning them in verses 2 and 3 that Jesus plus anything else is wrong. That any requirement that's added to our faith is wrong. The Judaizers were challenging a central doctrine, justification by faith and faith alone, as they came after these new believers in the church of Philippi. Paul says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, we who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. We are the circumcision. You do not need to be circumcised physically. When you read those verses without any kind of context, you're kind of like, what's Paul talking about? And those Judaizers had come to the predominantly Gentile church at Philippi, claiming that new Christians had to be circumcised according to the law, in order to be complete in Christ. It's interesting in this statement that the, that the Jews oftentimes called Gentiles dogs. And now Paul turns that term on them. They would, that would not have been lost on them if they saw Paul writing. You're calling us a dog? Yeah, <laughs> I am. The attack on the Philippian church was a frontal assault. Paul's language is much stronger than we can capture in today's translations. And maybe describing these Judaizers that I did as nasty and foul would be appropriate. The use of the term dog would immediately bring to mind the wild, vicious, homeless dogs that, and that roamed through the streets at that time. 
These men are men who do evil, literally evil workers, concentrating on deeds of the law rather than trusting God's grace. They were preying on the new Gentile believers by spreading false doctrine, making them feel that Christ's work, the message of the gospel, was inadequate. Paul literally calls them mutilators. He calls circumcision, in this case sarcastically, mutilation. It's very interesting, and sometimes we lose that because, hmm, okay, but mutilators is, is, is his point, because they're calling into, into question the adequacy of Christ's atonement. Biblical scholar named Frank Thielman says this, the atonement does not only mean that when God looks at us, he sees Christ, and it does not only mean that an exchange has taken place between our guilt and Christ's innocence, it means that God acknowledges us to be innocent. And get this, and like the father in the parable of the prodigal son runs to embrace us. That's pretty cool. He runs to embrace us, and that's what Paul is trying to pass on to them. They're saying Jesus is not enough. Your faith in Christ given to you by God is inadequate. They're causing the Philippian believers to question, do I really need to be circumcised to be a follower? Is faith in Jesus enough? Is there something more I need to do? The answer from Paul is a resounding no. And in verse 3, we see Paul's explanation. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, and I put that we who in there, uh, we who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Circumcision was an important rite and sign for the Israelite nation. It was a sign of obedience and identification to the old covenant, to the covenant that God made with Israel. And what the Judaizers were missing were two things. First, God, even through the Old Testament, was concerned about the heart of man. Deuteronomy 10, 14 says this, To the Lord your God belongs the heaven, heavens, even the highest heavens, and the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. The second thing these Judaizers missed were that they had now come under what's called the new covenant. The tradition of physical circumcision was no longer a requirement, and they had lost that in their zeal. Paul reminds us in Colossians 2, uh, for in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power, and authority. In him, you were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Paul reminds them, it is we who are the true circumcision. In in being brought to Christ, our hearts have been cut. They have been circumcised. We know We are the true circumcision, Paul says, because we worship, we serve God by his spirit. We know that we're the true circumcision because we boast not in ourselves, but in Christ Jesus. And we know we're the true circumcision because we do not put any confidence in the flesh. And it's just not the body, our human body Paul's talking about. He's talking about a much broader concept, the idea of what it means in our total being. Some of you have come from strict church backgrounds, which demanded 
things such as long dresses, hair coverings, long hair, a certain Bible translation known as the King James. Some have been taught that tongues are a sign of salvation. And you know what? If you don't speak in tongues, perhaps you're not submitting enough. What's wrong with you that you are not able to do that? Some of have you been, I think, have been taught that baptism is what regenerated you. It's called baptismal regeneration. Others have been taught that regular confession to a priest is required and that the Eucharist, what we call the Lord's Supper here, is a requirement to maintain your faith. Baptism is a physical symbol of a picture of our salvation experience. It is not a requirement for faith. Confession occurs between you and God anytime and anywhere. And if you never participate in the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist again because of something, it would not change your standing before God. We do it in a remembrance of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, but it is not a requirement for faith. I'm going to say this with a little caution because I'm, it's, it's, it's a, just a different statement perhaps. I think today, the enemy's attack is much more subtle for many personally and not as overt as the case was in the Church of Philippi in our country. There are many in our country today that teach heresy, and many believers, I dare say, don't have the discernment uh, to really dis- to, and to take apart their teaching. Many Americans, I don't think, would recognize the enemy's attack or that false doctrine. I think the enemy attacks our relationship with Christ in many ways. Here he tries to attack the Philippians through the Judaizers. His assault today is real, and he comes through an appealing, I think, to our old nature through pride, causing us to question and misunderstand our relationship with the Lord, that Jesus is enough. There is nothing we can do on our behalf to improve our standing. And we have to ask the question, why? Why? Because we stand perfect in him. There's nothing we can do that makes us look better before Jesus and before God. Why? Because Jesus is who God sees when he sees us. And we'll see a little more on this in Paul's admonition in verses 7 and 9. The bottom line, Satan seeks to cast doubt on God's power to save and to heal. Max Lucado, who was one of my favorite authors, and maybe some of you know him, uh, is a great devotional writer. He once said this, and I wish I could find the book because I'd like to be able to tell you what book it was in, but Max said this, Satan is the great ventriloquist. He he seeks to imitate the voice of God. When you look back at Genesis 3, the serpent statement is, surely God didn't say. Eve, did God really say that? The enemy, Satan, calls into question our relationship with God, our position with him, and our worth to God through our, perhaps, bad experiences, poor circumstances, through our poor decisions, ungodly desires, and our culture's influence. Jesus, Paul says, plus anything else is wrong. In verses 4 to 6, Paul reminds them who he was before he met Jesus, It's almost like a sidebar in a conversation because Paul has said, do not put confidence in flesh. And he goes, hey, you know, speaking of the flesh, I, Paul, certainly had reason for such confidence. Look at my resume. Here it goes. He goes, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, 
I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. Paul's response to this resume, I think, is profound, challenging, and occurring. And as you review this section of Scripture in preparation for John next week, my hope is that you'll have your rulers and colored pencils or pens out and that the lines connecting words, phrases, and concepts will continue to grow as you personally study the Bible. Listen to Paul's response to his resume. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I'm just looking. Uh, Yeah, good. Okay, cool. Um, uh, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Uh, Those markings where you see the gold were some of my underlines, and even as I was rereading the text yesterday, I missed in the NIV, it says, consider loss for the sake of Christ. ESV says, I count them that way, and I had not seen those two, that Paul had really thought about this. Paul has said in verses 2 and 3, Jesus plus anything else for faith is a no, In these last verses, he talks of not having a righteousness of his own, but a righteousness that is through faith in Christ that comes from God on the basis of faith. His focus is on the righteousness that God provides through Christ. It is adequate and sufficient, far better than anything we or he had to offer. But let me caution you. However, when we're not firmly rooted in the gospel, Let me remind you of what the word safeguard means. The the reason why Paul writes is to keep them from tottering, from falling or being entrapped by false doctrine. When when we're not firmly rooted in the gospel, we, we rely on false sources of righteousness to build our reputation and give us a sense of worth and value. So though we are not being challenged today to be circumcised, there's nobody going to meet you at the door and have some knives going like this. Um, Today we are being challenged to ask or to not trust in our own righteousness, which happens in much more subtle ways. Let me illustrate with a few examples. How about job righteousness? I'm a hard worker, so God will reward me. How about family righteousness? Boy, because I do right things as a parent, I'm godlier than the parents who can't control their kids. How about theological righteousness? I have a good theology. God perverts me over those who have a bad theology. Intellectual righteousness, I, I am a better read. I read better, more articulate, and more culturally savvy than others, which obviously makes me superior. How about schedule rightness, righteousness? There's some people I know who love their schedules. I am, a self, I am self-disciplined and rigorous in my time management, which makes me more mature than others. Flexibility righteousness. In a world that's busy, I'm flexible and relaxed. I always make time for others. Shame on those who don't. Mercy righteousness. I care about the poor and the disadvantaged the way everyone else should. 
financial righteousness. I manage money more wisely and stay out of debt. I'm not like those materialistic Christians. How about political righteousness? If you really love God, you'll vote for my candidate. (laughs) Tolerance righteousness. I'm open-minded and charitable toward those who don't agree with me. In fact, I'm a lot like Jesus that way. Paul says, these thoughts are trash. They need to be countered by the gospel and thrown into the garbage. He has considered or counted that is thought through and reflected on these and has come to that conclusion that they are trash. Remember, Paul was called out by the revelation of Jesus on the road to Damascus, who spent several years out of the spotlight after that, I think, looking at the Old Testament scriptures for the first time through his new lenses in Christ. He's reading this Old Testament going, whoa, look at Isaiah, look at Jer- look, the Messiah, this is him. Um, the writer of 30% of the New Testament says this in verse 10 and 11, surely, or he says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Surely Paul would know Christ, don't you think? But Paul wanted to know more about the one he had met on the road to Damascus. It's a posture, I think, that would be wise for all of us to embrace. Paul has said in 1 Timothy 6.11 that this posture is an active posture. He said, He says we need to be pursuing, fighting the good fight of faith, taking hold of the eternal life to which we have been called. We need to press on and push forward. The term in theology that Paul is teaching, and I want to throw out to you and encourage you to study, is progressive sanctification. Now, because I teach in a university, um, I love slides, and so I have some slides, some more slides, okay? So you're going to see them pop up, and I'm going to read the text along with you as you see it. It's a little big, but I think it's something that we need to take. And I hope when you go home, if you have a Bible dictionary, you go online, you can look up this concept. So here we go. Progressive sanctification is the process in a Christian's life in which he or she is made progressively holy. Sanctify means to set apart, make holy. Sanctification has three aspects. Positional sanctification, progressive sanctification, and ultimate sanctification. Positional sanctification is the fact that God declares a Christian to be absolutely holy the moment he or she believes in Jesus Christ. When God looks at a Christian, he sees the righteousness and holiness of Christ. Ultimate sanctification is what occurs at death when a Christian is absolutely and permanently free from the very presence of sin and is perfected in God's sight. Progressive sanctification is the process of taking what we are positionally and what we will be ultimately and progressively making it reality in our Christian life. Progressive sanctification is described in Galatians 5. It's the journey of producing less and less of the acts of the sinful nature and more and more of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Progressive sanctification is empowered by the Holy Spirit and enabled through prayer and the study of God's word. Timothy, 2 Timothy tells us, Paul tells us, that all scriptures God breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man and woman of God may be thoroughly equipped 
for every good work. <laughs> Murder, can you give us the next slide, please? <laughs> We're coming. And I even have a pointer today. Good. So let me show you. You have seen this slide before. Uh, Sean used it when we were going through the book of Mark. John has used it. And as I was thinking about this passage, I'm like, we're going to repeat this again. Because repetition is good for the soul. This is progressive sanctification in a simple simple illustration. Uh, At your and my conversion, things changed. And our hope is, Paul's hope is, that the cross, uh, push the right button here, will grow larger and larger in your life in two ways. The top one says growing awareness of God's holiness. That the older you get, the more you'll understand how much, how holy God is, how much he loves you, and you will love him. You'll just go, man, this is amazing. And then on this bottom uh, line, you'll have a growing awareness of sinfulness. Not that your sin is increasing, but you'll understand, boy, just how much sin has not only affected you, but continues to affect you and in the life and the culture uh, that, that we live. We, the Bible declares this, uh, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Progressive sanctification is the calling of every Christian here. We are called to become more and more like Jesus Christ. It should be our goal each and every day to become more and more set apart for God and his purpose. The cross must grow larger in our life. We're going to move to a time of reflection and as we get ready to respond through taking the Lord's Supper and offering our tithes and offerings. A couple things as we begin to move into that quiet time. As you consider your growth in the process of sanctification, where are you? Are there things from your past that have been attached to Jesus which make you think, feel, and act in ways that cause you to trust in false sources of righteousness? What needs to change in your way of thinking to understand that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way? If you're not a Christian but would like to talk more about that, you can see myself or Sean. I'm not sure there's any elders here besides he and I right now, but but out by the Connect desk. If you have any questions, I found a new book. And everybody knows I could not get away from this sermon without talking about a new book because I love books. Um, I would invite you to get a copy. In fact, if you want, I'll get you a copy. Uh, And it's called A Skeptic's Guide to Faith by Philip Yancey. It just came out in the last few months. It is wonderful. And it's his journey from skepticism to faith. And if you know much about Yancey, he's an great Christian writer, good thinker. And if you'd like, we can get someone to come alongside you and work through that book and begin to answer perhaps some of the questions you have. I'm going to pray for us. And then as I do, the team is going to come back and uh, play for a few minutes. And I ask that as you sit, that you consider 
what you've heard, you consider the word, and then we'll finish our time. Jesus, thank you for your word. Father, thanks for meeting Paul on the road to Damascus. Thanks for taking this Hebrew of Hebrews, um, a Pharisee, and making your presence known in his life. Father, Lord, the, the, the church as a whole owes much to you and to Paul for the things that you did in his life, for the doctrine that he has given the church for this great book of Philippians. I pray, Lord, for my friends that you would help them and myself consider these things, Lord. Point out the areas that we need to trust you more, Lord, so that we would progressively grow in our knowledge and love for you. Father, thanks. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.